Amen, amen. You can be seated. So we're in Luke chapter 16 today. We're closing out the chapter, verses 19 through 31. And this is picking up a discourse. Let me just say this before I, before I get into it. The, the, this would be, this is a, a, the right time, an opportune time to just emphasize again how important the Word of God is to us. Uh, not just to us as a church, but really to all people. This is where we're going to kind of land. The sermon's going to finish out in this place. I would encourage you not just to listen to me, but to pull out your Bibles, whether you're following along on a tablet or uh, an iPhone or even an Android, God forbid. Um, I'm just kidding. Or whether you're old school and you, got, you, know, you like the feel of the pages and the print on the page and, and whatever. Bring the, pull it out. If you don't have your Bible with you, then, then get one out of the back of the chairs and open to Luke chapter 16. Let the word do its work today. This is the one, it's, it's that thing with power. And so uh, my words are empty apart from the word of Christ or the word of God. And so I would encourage you to be uh, with us in that. So Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, where we're picking up in the, at the end of a discourse that Jesus has been giving. Primarily, he's been speaking to the Pharisees. They're not the only people listening. They're not the only ones that have been involved. Uh, there's other people listening in. In fact, there's a point where he addresses his disciples directly, but primarily he's speaking to, uh, his, uh, to these Pharisees because of their reactions to him. In Luke 15, it is where the discourse opens. It starts all the way back there, and, and it starts with the Pharisees grumbling. Grumbling because he is spending time with and, and sharing meals with people that they don't deem worthy of spiritual conversation or spiritual attention. They, they, they see them as despised and rejected, and, and they can't believe that a man that was supposed to be a man of God like Jesus would have anything to do with them. Well, Jesus... Then teaches. He teaches one parable in three parts. It's a trilogy, if you will, uh, uh, of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. He teaches the, this one long parable in three parts. And, and in teaching or introducing, if you will, the Pharisees to the God that they claim to be pleasing with their lives. Well, what Jesus taught them, what Jesus showed them, well, they didn't know God as, as good as they thought they did. They didn't know God in the way that they would claim to know. They, they knew his character as righteous and holy. and they, they knew him as a God of perfection. But they didn't recognize his character as far as his love, his mercy, and his grace. And so, so, so Jesus introduces them to this God, this holy and righteous God who rejoices at seeking out and saving or receiving repentant sinners. It, that's the whole lesson of those parables over and over and over again. The whole Godhead involved in both seeking out and receiving repentant sinners. And he rejoices in, in, in their repentance. Now, having taught that though, he didn't say he didn't he didn't leave them in a place where, okay, well now that you're found by him, now that you've been sought and found, and now that you've been reconciled to him, well, you can just go on about your life and do whatever you wanted. No, there's still a call for God's people to obedience, not, not obeying the law to prove yourself worthy, not throwing off the law because it doesn't matter anymore, but obeying to the glory of God, not because we have to, but because we get to. And so it, he, he teaches his disciples at the beginning of chapter 16, he points specifically to them, he speaks specifically to them, and he says to them, 
Don't waste your opportunities. Don't waste your resources. Don't waste those things that I've given you. Instead, live every moment today as if your eternal future depends on it. In fact, live with, with uh, using your resources, all of them, time, treasure, talents, everything that God has, has given you in this life. Use it with eternity in mind. Use it so, such that because eternity matters. And so it's going to change how you do that. Then when Jesus finished teaching that, the, the three parables, the one long parable in three parts, and then the next parable to his disciples, we get to see the response of those Pharisees who grumbled at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. They begin to ridicule. And they begin to speak. They're not just grumbling and mumbling under their breath to one another. Now they're ridiculing Jesus to his face. And what's in their heart begins to come out their mouths. Well, that's where it gets real. He turns it up just a little bit more. He, he had gone from confronting them and showing them the truth of who Jesus or, or who God was and the fact that they didn't really know him to being very direct. And he actually says some of the most difficult words I think he'd ever said to anybody face to face. He showed the Pharisees that they were no better, they were no more worthy of God's blessing than those tax collectors and sinners that they despised so much. In fact, he confronted them with the reality that, that they were as much an abomination as they thought the tax collectors and sinners were. And I'll just say for myself, you you decide on your own. You're, you're, you're big enough to do that. I don't think that's, a, that, that's not the words I'm looking to hear from Jesus. Like when, when I see him face to face, I don't want to hear abomination, right? Truth is, I've, I've really already been convinced of that. Apart from him, that's who I am. These, these, these Pharisees, they... They were doing everything they could to deny this teaching and to reject it. And, and they were seeking to do everything they could to deny and reject the one who taught it. But Jesus wouldn't let them. And so he does, what he does is, is as he has done all the way through this discourse, is he, he takes his teaching and he encapsulates it in a story. And it gets right to the heart of what these Pharisees needed to hear. And that's the story that we're studying today. And all the way through this story, there's, there's, there's themes that are drawing on the whole ministry of Christ, but there are specific themes, threads that are being tied together with the whole context of what's happened in chapter 15 uh, all the way now through chapter 16. So let's begin reading Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. The scripture says, this is Jesus' words. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, 
Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there or here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said to them, All right, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And there are a lot of lessons that we can take from this, this passage. Like, there's a lot of lessons that, that our culture, that our context, that, that common um, current difficulties and struggles that we deal with that, that we could take out of this. For example, heaven and hell are real. People are going to live after they die. Eternal uh, life in heaven or eternal life in hell are, are real things. Jesus assumed them to be true. He assumed them to be real. We see it told in this story. When we die, we will either live eternally with God as recipients of his gracious blessings, or we will live eternally separated from God in eternal torment. A place where Jesus says in another place, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. And I think that's here. I think you could make a sermon out of that. I think I could have taught that sermon, but that's not the point I think Jesus is making. I think it's a truth that he's just assuming, that they understand also. The Pharisees believed it. They're not questioning this. Now, I think another current sermon that we could take from this is that, that, that in defense of, or not in, not in defense of, but in contrast to the, the, the saying that's so easily spread around in Christian circles uh, I think the lesson we could take from this is that God does not help those who help themselves. No, I didn't say that wrong. You've been told by well-meaning people. You maybe have even tweeted, it fits really well in that 140 characters. God helps those who help themselves. That is a lie. I think that's, I think that's a clear lesson that we could draw from this passage. Take the rich man, for example. He'd been helping himself all his life. He'd been giving himself to making sure that he had all the comforts and all the things that he wanted and all the things that he needed. And he was, he was helping himself at every turn. And he ended up not being helped at all. In contrast, in contrast, there's Lazarus. And, and Lazarus, this is not, this is not the Lazarus that, that would get sick and then die and then Jesus would go to Bethany and raise him from the dead. That's, that's not this Lazarus. This, this Lazarus is just a character in Jesus's story. He's not even a real person. He's a character in this parable. But, but this Lazarus, just incidentally, so that you know this, it, it speaks to this, to this point. Lazarus is the only character in any of Jesus's parables, so far as we know, that actually gets a name. He actually is named, and, and his name is important because of what it means. His name means whom God helped or helped of God. Do you say it either of those ways? Whom God helped. Lazarus means whom God helped. Now, it may not appear that God's helping him. 
But clearly by the end of the story, you see, God helped the one who couldn't help himself, but was faithful to the one who did and who can. You see, the thing is, is this, is that God doesn't help those who can help themselves, but God promises to help those who are faithful and repentant. This is key. All the way through this, that, that trilogy of a parable, the, the lost son, the lost coin, and, the, and the, lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, that trilogy, over and over and over, the key is repentance. God seeks out repentant sinners. God receives repentant sinners and rejoices in doing so. That repentance is, is the key. It, 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 it's, it's to turning from trusting in ourselves or seeking to help ourselves and trusting in the one who can. That, that, that's the promise that as we turn to him in faith and repentance that we are helped because we are incapable of helping ourselves. Now these may be evident, but they are, and they may even be good lessons. And maybe I've just helped you in some way. But I don't think they're Jesus' point. See, Jesus is not speaking to us today directly. He's speaking to Pharisees. He's confronting Pharisees who, who have just ridiculed him for, for, for the things he's been teaching. And so he's showing them that they have a problem. The Pharisees have a serious problem. They are sinners and they can't see it. They are convinced of their own value, their own worth. They're convinced of their own ability to earn their place before God. But in the verses just before these, in the verses just preceding these that led into this story that kind of set the stage for this story, we're seeing, we see that they are lovers of money. They are idolaters. They love their stuff more than they love God. They love the things that they have more than they love the God who they say they're seeking to please. They're idolaters. They're hypocrites. Jesus says that they are a people who seek to justify themselves. But God knows their hearts. They're one thing on the outside and they're a totally different thing on the inside. What's true about them on the outside is not true about them on the inside. And what's true about them just proves out to be that there's no truth in them. They're a, a, a ball woven together of inconsistency and falsehoods. They present themselves in one way. They show themselves to be one thing, but inside they're rotten to the core. Such that Jesus would say their very lifestyles were detestable. They were abom an abomination. And they were adulterers. Their treatment of marriage and divorce and the law about marriage and divorce demonstrates their own hypocrisy and their own sin. The, the harder they sought to obey the law that God had given them, the more that law condemned them because the more they failed in keeping it. That law, all it did was exactly what God intended it to do, and it showed them his righteousness and their lack of righteousness. It showed them their sinfulness in light of his holiness. The implication of their great problem, the, the way that their great problem would wake, work, work out, needed to be confronted. See, they were sinners and they wouldn't admit it. They were doing everything they could to condemn Christ, to reject Christ and all that he taught. They were, they were seeking to call him a liar. So Jesus confronts them. 
and he confronts them with, with truth. These are hard words he's saying to them. But if he didn't correct them, if he didn't care enough about them, you, you got to hear, you got to know this. Jesus isn't just standing up and speaking to them because he just wants to show them how bad they are. He loves them. He longs for them to see the truth, that they could respond to the truth. And if he's not going to correct them, if he's not going to confront them with the truth about their lies, if he's not going to bring the truth of their situation and their great problem into, into front and center so that they can do something with it, nobody else is going to. These are the people that everybody else propped up. These are the people that everybody else looked to and said, look at how holy they are. Look at how good they are. They surely are pleasing God with their life. And look at all the stuff they have. God must really love them. God must have approved of them. I wish God loved me as much as he loved them. You see, these were the people who everybody else looked up to and said, these are the ones that we want to be like. And so if Jesus wouldn't bring them truth, there was no one else that could. And so he does. And he drives right to the heart of their problem with the thing that they idolize most in their heart. Their stuff. See, I think the main point is this. And I think he wants them to learn this lesson. There is nothing in this life worth more than living eternally with Jesus in the life to come. Let me say it again. There is nothing in this life worth more than living eternally with, the, with Jesus in the life to come. Listen, the rich man had it all. He had everything. He was rich. He was, he, 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 he was providing for himself. He seemed to be self-sustaining. He seemed to be approved and blessed by God. And, and we see that in the story because of the way he dresses he had the most elegant of styles. He had the most elegant of clothing. He, 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 he calls it uh, purple and fine linen. And purple cloth back in that day, for us, it's not that big a deal. Like, you wear purple, good on you. Glad you do. Glad you can. It's not a big deal. Mix a little red and blue, it comes out purple, right? That's what happens. But, but for them, that was a, it was a much different thing. To get purple dye in that day was a, a massive work. They had to go and dive into the sea and, and bring up, uh, it was either uh, underwater snails or clams. I'm not exactly sure which. I, I, I read it both ways and uh, not sure, but, but it was labor intensive. And each one, it's like they had to collect a lot to get some dye, right? So, so the dye was limited. It was difficult to get to. It was labor intensive to collect. So to, to have purple clothing meant that you had money. You were able to pay to have purple clothing. But, but you put that together with, with, white, with, with the, the fine linen. And not only is he dressed in purple, but he's wearing this bright white, uh, it, was, it would have been like Egyptian cotton. It was the best of the linen. It was, it was the thing that everybody longed for. It's like the sheets you want to climb into in, in the fancy hotel with like the 600 or 1,000 count Egyptian cotton sheets that are supposed to be so nice to sleep on. I, I've never gotten to sleep on those, so I don't know if it's better or not. But, but the thicker the thread count, the higher the thread count. You know, it's supposed to be better. That's the kind of clothes this guy wore. But, but it wasn't just on Sunday. It wasn't like, okay, it's time to go to synagogue. So put, put, on, my, put on my white linens and my purple robe and, and head out to, 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 to synagogue and go to worship. No, that wasn't his Sunday best. This was every day. He dressed in this way every day. He was wearing the, the, the best that money could buy, whether it's Gucci or, or, or I don't, I, I'm terrible with 
I, I said this in the first service. I probably shouldn't say it again, but, I, but, but for the sake of your enjoyment, I will. I don't follow styles, right? I mean, I told you a few months back, I have, I have five shirts that I kind of rotate through on a Sunday, and I actually bought a couple others, and so now I think I've got like seven, maybe eight that I'll rotate through. You'll see me in this shirt again at some point, uh, it's, and I, I, that's okay with me. I don't care. Like, I buy my clothes, I buy my jeans at Old Navy. I, I, I don't care if there's a bunch of beads on the pocket. It doesn't matter to me. It's just so long as I come here dressed, right? That's the important thing to me as I come clothed. You come clothed, I come clothed. Boom, we're, we got church, right? We're, we're happy. That's the, that's the thing. But this guy, man, he wanted the best of the best of the best. And so he's got both the purple linen or the purple robes and the white linens. He's, he's, he's knocking it out of the park in his purple and white. Right? That's what he's doing. And it is demonstrating to everyone around that he's got money. This dude is loaded. He says that he feasted sumptuously. That's the way it says it. He feasted sumptuously. When? Every day. I think this draws from that image. So when the lost son comes home, the father runs to him and is excited and he's kissing him and he puts a robe on him and he puts a ring on him, puts shoes on him and he says, go kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son that was lost is found. My son that was dead is now alive. He's throwing this huge party because the, the most special occasion of all occasions has just happened and he's ecstatic about it. That's the picture of what this guy is doing every day. He's got a fatted calf waiting in the wings for tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, he's eating Kobe steaks all night, every night. There is an endless supply in his barn. The guy is feasting sumptuously. And it's not just him, but any he deems worthy to be at his parties. There to celebrate and, and feast. But the gate of his house also is indicative of his wealth. Like, you know, when you pull up, in your car to some fancy gate that's got a speaker box out on the side and you know you got to call in to get somebody to open the gate and you don't expect to pull up to a double wide right on the other side of that that we know behind that gate is a mansion is a an, an estate you know that that somebody's got dinosaurs carved in their bushes and I don't know, the guy in Reed Springs did that. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. It was always crazy to me. But in his little estate, he had weird things carved into his bushes. And, but that's what you expect behind a gate like this guy's gate. But that gate, what that gate did for him was it separated him and, and, and him in all of his worthiness, all of his blessedness and all of his goodness. And look at how I live and how God loves me and approves of me and all the stuff he's blessed me with. It separates him. From the likes of a man like Lazarus. See, this is a very stark contrast. And he had no desire for Lazarus to be anywhere close. See, the story of Lazarus, man, is a lot different, isn't it? Man, this, this, this guy wasn't dressed up in purple and fine linen. He was covered with oozing sores. Now, I'm not meaning to be gross. I mean, the scripture is the one calling this out. He's pussy, right? It's not leprosy. It's not 
If it was leprosy, he'd been sent away. This is some sort of sore that oozes pus. His body is covered with them. He's not feasting sumptuously. All I want is crumbs. I just want to eat what's on this guy's floor. And in the text, it's, it's easy to miss this in the English. In, in the story, in the English, it says that he was laid at the gate. In the original language, not like somebody came up and gently laid him there so that hopefully the rich man would do something for him. The word literally means thrown down. It's, it, it's a word that indicates force as someone is, 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 something is thrown down. Like you might do with a, you know, I don't know, like a, a rotten apple. You cast it down, throw it down. That's what this guy was cast down. Whoever didn't want him didn't gently lay him there. They cast him off. They threw him away. Like you might your garbage. And to add insult to injury, I mean, you think it's bad. The dogs even come and lick his source. That's the way it's presented. This is not something that... <laughs> Benefit is it just shows us how bad it is. The dogs come lick his sores. I I read from some people that would say, "Oh well, uh, you know that's dogs. Uh, they'll lick your sores. Kind of a it's it's they're they're helping you." Dogs weren't pets to them like they are to us. They didn't keep them like we do. They, didn't, they, 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 they weren't necessarily wild in the sense of like wolves, but they were strays. I was, I, again, something I used in the first service that uh, maybe you'll find it helpful. You go to Africa with us, and you're going to see dogs in, in the village where we go, but we're going to train you before you get there. Dogs aren't pets, so don't pet them. Leave them alone, and they leave you alone. If you don't bother them, they won't bite you. Right? It's kind of like a wasp. If you leave the wasp alone, you shouldn't get stung, probably, most likely. You won't get bit if you leave the dog. Alone. We've never had anybody bit. Oh, somebody, actually, there's somebody training with us to go to this. <laughs> there's somebody in the first service that was training to go to Africa, and it freaked her out a little bit. But anyway, the dogs came and licked it soars. The thing, I, I think this, the, the picture, you think back, again, I think this is a thread being drawn out of the parable of the lost son. There's this moment where this, this lost son, this son that had run off and, and run to do his own thing and live by his own authority and in his own independence finds himself empty-handed. He has nothing. He's got nothing. So he gives himself, he glues himself, the text says, he glues himself to this pig farmer who sends him out to feed his pigs. And he's so hungry, he's so empty-handed that all he wants is to eat the pig slop. And the only company he has in life are pigs. I think that's what's happening here is we're seeing this guy for just how bad it is. He's so cast away, he's so cast off, he is so despised and so overlooked that the only company he has are dogs who would eat off of him. Who'd rather have him for dinner than be his friend? The contrast between these two men 
is stark. I'm grateful it doesn't end there. You see, it moves from what it looks like in their lives to what it looks like in their death. The rich man's given a burial. Like he actually has people show up, carry his casket, and put it, you know, probably gets a large, puts it in the ground, probably gets a large monument. Lazarus, as far as we can see, they don't even bury him. I don't know what happens to him as he lays there at the gate. But he's so overlooked. He's so cast away. He's so nothing to anyone else that when he dies, no one does anything about it. At least by all appearances here. Because this is where the contrast, man, it gets pretty crazy. The contrast continues, but, but... but things get flipped right side up. Or at least in God's economy, they get flipped right side up. Because in life after death, Lazarus opens his eyes. And he didn't get a funeral. But he's attended to by angels. God's angels deal with him. And some people say, oh, they brought his body to... But we don't know that. And in fact, it, it would kind of go against other teachings of Scripture. What we, what we know is that Lazarus wakes up. In, at least in his spirit, in, at least his spirit opens his eyes from death into eternity and he finds himself having been attended to by angels and being set by Abraham. And Abraham is this picture, the father of the Israelites, he's this picture of faithfulness. I think that's why Jesus draws him in here. Abraham didn't get to this place, he didn't come to this place because Abraham was a good guy. He came to this place because he was faithful. You can read about it in Genesis uh, I think it's 12. Uh, but but he, Abraham's faith was counted to him as his righteousness. Paul also illustrates this in Romans chapter 4. He is the father of faith. What he did with his life demonstrated the faith that he had in his heart. And so now, as Jesus is talking about this eternal state, Abraham is there because he represents the faithful. Lazarus is placed by him because he represented by Abraham the faithful. Lazarus didn't end up there because he was poor or because he had a hard time. He was helped by God because God is gracious and helps those who are faithful and repentant. And the rich man, the rich man who would have been seen in this life as one who had it all, suddenly he is left empty-handed. He ends up in what's called Hades. No, neither paradise was what Jesus referred to this on the cross, the, the, the state where, where those faithful and repentant people dwell waiting for the resurrection. Paradise and Hades is, is that place where the, the non-faithful, the non-repentant people dwell. And that place, the torment and the, and the suffering begins immediately. It's not hell in the sense of the eternal sense of the word, but, but the torment has begun. So, so Lazarus is in this place where peace has been established and where suffering, he's standing there no longer covered by sores, but he has been healed. But this rich man is so thirsty because he is burning. He longs longs just for a drop of water in the same way Lazarus might have longed for the crumbs from his table. I I don't need a whole bottle. I don't don't need 20 ounces. Just give me a drop. Go 
his thirst. The question that kept pressing in on me as I read this and studied this this week was, who would I rather be? Would I rather be the rich man or or Lazarus? Now, if the story ended at the burial, like that's it, there is no life after death, there is no eternal uh, future to consider, there is no, no living in grace or living in judgment. If none of that were true, if none of that existed, then, then I think this, that's an easy decision, right? Like, give me the rich man. Come on, bring it on. Give me the Gucci. I'll go ahead and just have all I can now. Let me have it. I don't know why I keep bringing up Gucci. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> what, what do they do? Like make purses or something? Give me a purse. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Got to keep going. It doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, so that's what I'd want. Like, give me the stuff, you know. I want it all. Let me have it all now because there's nothing later. That's what I want. But the story doesn't end at the death. The story keeps going because Jesus assumes that eternity is for everyone. Some to judgment and some to blessing. So who, have I, who do I want to be? Well, sitting here in this moment, right, it's Lazarus. This life we live is just a blip on the radar. Like, like, like it's a dot on a timeline for eternity. Like we get one little dot for the 80 and 90 years we might live on this earth. And then it just goes on and on and on. And there's like an arrow at the end because the line doesn't stop, right? Like it doesn't have a dash, at the, a block at the end. It doesn't have another dot because the line has stopped. The line keeps going and going and going and going. And so this little blip, man, it doesn't mean much. Eternity's a long time. So who do I want to be? Lazarus. Why wouldn't I want to be Lazarus? Uh, Hades sounds pretty bad. Heaven sounds pretty good. But I was pressed with another question. I couldn't stop there. Because I think Jesus' point is to press past who do I want to be? Do the actions of our lives affirm our answer. See, these Pharisees had a problem. They were a dreadfully sinful people. The way they used their money, the way they obeyed the law, the way they sought to justify themselves proved that their actions didn't affirm their eternity. Their actions were actually condemning them. Their actions actually showed that there was a heart that was an abomination before God. Their actions proved in the ways that they treated other people, in the ways that they, that they used the resources that he had given them. It proved that they were not going where they thought they were going. They, like this rich man, were going to be astonished to wake up in Hades. 
this is where the Pharisees really needed to get honest with themselves. They needed to push the lies back. We all have lies, we believe. We need to push them back. That we can see the truth. This is where we all need to get honest with ourselves. There is nothing. No relationship. No role. No job. No position. No amount of power. No, 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 no family. No, no uh, money. No, nothing. There is nothing. And I don't know how to emphasize nothing more than just saying it again and again and again. But I think you know what nothing means. There is nothing in this life worth more than living eternally with Jesus in the life to come. There is nothing here. No matter what you gain, no matter what you can get, no matter what you can accumulate, it will leave you empty. If you do not have Christ, you have nothing. This is what Jesus is confronting these Pharisees with because this is the only way that they would listen was direct and confrontational Teaching. Look, we aren't Pharisees in doctrine, and I get that. I, I totally understand. We are not Pharisees wearing our robes and our prayer shawls and, and, and wearing the phylacteries around our foreheads and things. I, I get that we're not Pharisees in doctrine. But we live in a nation full of Pharisees in practice. And the truth is, it's just as real in the church as it is outside the church. Did you know, did you know that the vast majority of people still believe that there's a heaven and hell? In a study from 2014, 70, 72% of Americans still believe in heaven. Now, they might say they're agnostic or atheist, but they still believe in, in heaven. Now, there's no telling how they define that, but they believe in some good place that good people go when they die. 58% of people still believe in hell. 58% of people believe that there's some place that bad people are going to go when they die. And when you speak to those same people, the vast majority still think hell is for someone else. I'm a good enough person. I'm going to heaven. But if we would just get honest with ourselves for just a minute. Do, do the actions of our life, the way we treat other people, the way we utilize our resources, do they really affirm the eternity we assume? I mean, come on, let's think about this. Let's just be honest. I mean, we don't go to school to be Lazarus, right? I mean, none of us are, are, are going and seeking an education. But don't, don't, don't misunderstand, I'm not demeaning education. But most of us don't go and get an education with degrees and, and, and credentials that, that prove us worthy of something so that we can say we're Lazarus, Right? I mean, we don't teach our children about going and getting an education and growing up and, and being a productive person in society and, and, and heap on them expectations because we want them to grow up to be Lazarus. Right? We, we don't go to work to get poor. Do we? 
I don't, I don't know about you, but I expect to get paid. I, well, I did do this for free for a while, but I went to another job expecting to get paid. And something that well, was funny, something I learned at that job, the vast majority of people are not satisfied with what they get paid. They think they're worth more. It's quite likely that you've sat around your job with other employees and said, I don't get paid enough for what I do. Truth is, I think it's a work of the gospel of grace in our hearts to be content with whatever we get. So that when we learn to live on what we make and we get a raise, then we can be a blessing to other people. I think that's a work of God's grace. I think the reality, the natural bent of people's hearts is we go to work because we want to get stuff. We don't go to work to become Lazarus. We measure success on how much we get. Not, we don't measure success on how much we give away. Not on how gracious we are to difficult people. The the people that are difficult to love. Like we're not measuring success on how we love them, right? Like we're not measuring success on, on how gracious and merciful and giving we are. We measure success based on the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, number of square feet that's connected to the garage that holds those cars. We live in a world, we live in a world where most of us are better prepared to retire than die. It's true. In fact, more people are being told to get ready to retire than there are people being told to get ready to die. Now, we may not be Pharisees in doctrine, but we live in a world full of Pharisees, and some of you might be sitting in this room, but we need to be honest with ourselves. Jesus teaches us that there is nothing worth more in this life than knowing him, living eternally with him in the life to come. That's the point of this passage. Listen, none of these things, none of these things, the the, the retirement account, the education, the the house to live in, and even if it's a nice house and a nice car and, and nice clothes, and none of these things in the right priority are bad things. They're just things. There's nothing wrong with them. I'm not trying to teach you a gospel of works, a gospel of, 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 of uh, do all the right things and get saved. That's, that's not what this is about. None of these things in the right priority are bad things. They only become an issue when these, the, these things become priorities to us. When these possessions and these, and these things that we count as, as successful become more important to us than Christ. When we displace Christ with possessions and relationships and, 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 and position and power and control. And when we, when we replace Christ with these things, then we lose everything. If we don't have Christ, we have nothing. But when we have Christ, we've gained it all. We've we've been given and blessed with much more than we could ever imagine so that when we die, we do become Lazarus, so that when we die, we are enjoying the blessed things of life. When we grasp hold of the value of eternal life with Jesus Christ, there's nothing else we'll long for more. 
We won't want the junk of this world over the, over the blessings of God. Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who believed these things about himself. He sought to justify himself. He, shot, he sought to live and abide by the law. He condemned people that would follow after Christ. And yet when Christ showed up in his life, he got it. And we see how he got it in Philippians as he's writing to this church in Philippi. He, he writes to them about this and he's talking about his testimony. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I did all of these things. I was faultless in my own sight. And he comes to chapter 3, verse 7, and he begins to show how those, well, how those things meant nothing. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. They're not just something there. They were taking away. They were a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And, and, and that's not just trash in a, in a, in a trash heap or, or the dump. That's a pile of manure. I have counted these things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen, that by any means possible, that nothing would get in my way, that nothing would stop me, that nothing would hold me back or hinder me in any way, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, he knew, he'd learned the lesson that there is nothing in this life worth losing Jesus in the life to come. He knew it full well, and so he goes on in, in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He doesn't do this by his own power. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting what I depended on for so long, how I measured myself for so long, forgetting what I counted as a success for so long, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Nothing is getting in my way. No one is keeping me from Christ. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He gave up the pursuit of the pharisaical life for the life of faithfulness to God in Jesus Christ. It's the principle, it's the principle that we can all apply to our lives. We cannot take hold of the treasures of eternal life while we still cling to the trinkets of this life. We cannot do it. We cannot hold on to or grasp hold of treasures in eternity while we are still doing all we can to hang on to what's behind us and not willing to let it go. And Paul didn't just get this. Jesus taught it. This is a theme of his, his whole ministry in chapter 9, verses 23 through 25 of Luke. Jesus says this clearly. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And follow me. Not, not feast sumptuously, sumptuously daily. Pick up your cross daily. Die to what was so that you can live to what is. Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If he can have everything this life has to offer, what has he gained? If he forfeits himself. Nothing. 
In Luke chapter 17, we'll get there in just a few weeks. Speaking about the end times, the coming kingdom, Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. You cling to this life. You hold on to it with your whole might. You live to these idols. You give yourself and devote yourself to the things of this life, and you will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. And in this very context that we've been studying these last few weeks, Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. We can only cling to one or the other. We can't cling to both. We can cling to the things of this world or we can cling to the eternal treasures that he has promised us. No one can serve two masters for he who either hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the original text, I don't remember if I said this to those of you that were here, but in the original text, that word is mammon and, and, and it speaks more to possessions than just dollars, just cash in your pocket cannot serve God and stuff. You, listen, listen, this is not, again, it's not a gospel of, of works. It's not a gospel of paying your own way. You and I don't have enough. We cannot pay our own way into heaven. There is no one that has enough, not even the richest of all men. This rich man who had it all couldn't pay his way into heaven. He found himself in, in agony and in torment. What you do with your stuff is not going to get you to heaven. But what we do with our stuff indicates what we're devoted to in our hearts. In the passage before, in Luke chapter 16, the opening passage, he speaks to his disciples and he says, Now that you're my disciples, use your stuff accordingly. Use the resources I provided you with accordingly. Use them wisely, preparing for eternity. And in this passage, he's confronting the Pharisees because they are using their resources to prop themselves up in the present. Now, we, we can't buy our way into heaven. But how we use our stuff, how we accumulate stuff, how we devote ourselves to things demonstrates who has captured our, who or what has captured our heart. If Christ has our heart, then he will have our stuff. But if your stuff has your heart, you're sitting there angry with me because I've confronted you in your idolatry. This is also not a poverty gospel in contrast to a prosperity gospel. Poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. That's not at all. Or rich people get it all and, and then they end up in heaven too. That's not at all what, what this is teaching. But it is a primary call to devotion to Christ, a call to faithfulness. We're told all the time, okay, in our culture, we're told all the time, excellence, man, we gotta be excellent. Strive for excellence. You wanna go to work and strive for excellence, you go to work and strive, well, no, 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 strike that, strike it. You strive for excellence, you're gonna miss the mark of faithfulness. You strive for faithfulness to Christ, and you'll likely begin striving for excellence. You see, we're told in business all the time, oh, got to strive for excellence, got to be excellent. That's a lie. You can be as excellent as you want and find yourself in Hades. Wake up surprised and astonished that you're thirsty and burning. You strive for faithfulness. You live faithfully 
There is nothing in this life worth more than living eternally with Jesus in the life to come. And, and, and listen, let me just add this to this idea because, because he presents it here. The only thing that keeps someone out is their lack of willingness to repent, to be faithful and to repent. The, the lack of faith, the lack of repentance, that's what keeps us out. That's what keeps us separate. That's what we, we, we're like the Pharisees. We become like the Pharisees and we are ignoring, rejecting, denying the teaching of a Christ who would confront us and we're like, oh no, I got this stuff and this is my stuff and nobody's going to take it from me and I want it and I want more of it. And I'm not going to let that go because that stuff that doesn't mean that much to me right now. That's a lack of faithfulness. That's a lack of repentance. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. You, you ought to see what I do for people. But this is where the story lands. This is where Jesus brings the story. The thing that keeps people out it's not their social status, but faithfulness and repentance in front of the scriptures. See, this rich man, he continued to prove it even in Hades. You know, he never quit being arrogant. He's standing there burning and thirsty. And he looks over and he sees Abraham. And he doesn't, he doesn't like say, hey, Abraham, it'd be awesome if you'd help me out. He gives Abraham, Abraham of all people, father of the faith, right? The one who started Israel. Well, by God's power, who started Israel. Let's say it the right way. You go and do this. You, you have Lazarus go and do this. He commands him. Who is he? And Lazarus, I mean, Lazarus, the guy, he recognizes him. He's like, that's the guy that was at my gate. He owes me a favor. I let him lay at my gate. I didn't, I didn't send him away. Hey, make him go do this. I don't deserve this. I don't, I don't do. No, you do. That's why you're there. You earned what you earned in your life. And now you'll suffer. Well, the rich man never quits being focused on himself. He didn't, he didn't say, oh man, go and tell everybody about this. I don't want anyone coming back. I don't want anyone here. Go tell my father and my five brothers, as if that's all that matters. My father and my five brothers, I don't want them here. I don't care, I don't care who else ends up here, but those people who are important to me. Make sure they don't end up here. He's like, send somebody back to tell them. If, 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 somebody, if somebody will show up and tell them about this, and the implication is if somebody had showed up and told me about this, wouldn't be here. So send someone back. Send someone. Send, send someone from, from heaven. Send someone from paradise. Send someone from God's presence to stand in front of them and teach them the truth about what's coming and what will get them out of it so that they can repent. That's been done. He's the one telling the story. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us so that we could know there is nothing in this life worth more than him. Getting him, having him for all eternity. He put on flesh and he stood in their presence maybe two, three feet in front of them. 
teaching them. But he says, no. Even if a man comes back from the dead, and a man was going to come back from the dead, even that is not going to convince anybody. They need Moses and the prophets. In the parable previous, it was the law and the prophets. It refers to the scriptures. And in fact, specifically in that time, it was the Old Testament scriptures. They needed to hear God's word. If they wouldn't listen to God's word, they wouldn't listen to miracles. The thing is, this is not a teaching against miracles. Don't misunderstand. It's not a teaching against miracles. It's a teaching that, that without the word of God, the miracle is useless. If there's no explanation by the word of God, then the miracle means nothing. The word of God is the word that works. It is both sufficient and efficient. It is able and it is enough in making us ready for the life to come. And faith comes by hearing it, not seeing signs and wonders. Let me just give you, just quickly, a couple of scriptures that speak to this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, some of Paul's last words on the earth. All scripture, every bit of it, is breathed out by God. And in that time, he's referring more to the Old Testament than probably most of what we would consider the New Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's not to deny the New Testament, shouldn't have even said that, but... In his mind, the scriptures encapsulated in the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't until later that the New Testament was, was canonized and put together. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That means that it is, it is good for us. Teaching, reproof, it, it's showing us both what's good and right and what needs to be corrected. It trains us for righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete. So that the man of God who was Lazarus, that, that man oozing pus, can be made complete, equipped for every good work. And immediately, Paul, because this is the truth about the scripture, Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, I charge you then. He, he tells us what scripture is and he gives Timothy a charge that is handed down. To everyone else, I charge you in presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Don't depend on opinion. Don't depend on, on, on your wit and your charisma. Don't depend on what feels good and what tickles ears. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready at all times to preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. So the very same things that the scripture is good for, he's saying you do with it. You preach it in such a way that it does what it's intended to do with complete patience and teaching. Not stopping, not ever quitting. So we don't just need patient, patient teachers. We need patient listeners. Patient listeners who, who long to hear the word preached. Patient listeners that understand that more than I need the right relationship, more than I need a husband or a wife, more than I need a, 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 a family with the right number of children, more than I need a house to live in, food to eat, air to breathe, water to drink, more than I need any of that, I need Christ. And the, teach, and the scriptures are sufficient. They are enough. And they are efficient. They are able to teach us this. If we would just listen. If we would stop and hear. Our lives are filled with idols. 
but they don't have to be. Christ came and he showed us his value. And he says, now I'm seeking any who would repent. My father is receiving any who would repent. Who do I want to be? The ways that I'm using my resources, the ways I'm pursuing my relationships, the way I'm devoting my things to temporal things of this life, are they affirming the eternity I desire? What does the scripture teach you? 